It's a beautiful day and a fine time for healing. Podcast host Randy Fine, a narcissistic abuse expert and the author of the groundbreaking book, Close Encounters of the Worst Kind, and the captivating memoir, Cliff Edge Road, invites you into her sanctuary, a place where your physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being are all that matter. So put your feet up, relax, and enjoy today's show. And now, here's Randy. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to listen to A Fine Time for Healing. I'm actually laughing because, (laughs) you know, inevitably every Friday when I do this show, they start mowing my lawn right in front of my window, and it is so loud. (laughs) And it's like clockwork. So I don't know if you can hear it, but hopefully they'll go away soon. So the world has been thrown into a tailspin from this coronavirus pandemic. I don't have to tell you. And it has left us all trying to adjust to a new normal. But what is that new normal? And doesn't it seem we no longer or we no sooner start to adjust? Then it changes again. All this uncertainty, along with the fear for our safety and threat of our loved ones, and that of our loved ones, the economic crisis, and the fact that no one has that crystal ball to let us know how long this will go on. This has been very disconcerting, to say the least. We're hearing the words pivot, adapt, switch gears, accept. Don't worry, it'll all work out thrown around so much that sometimes we want to throw those words right back at the source from which they came. Why? Because our emotions haven't been addressed. Well, how do we do that? Today's special guest, Stephen Campbell, MSIS, author of the book, Making Your Mind Magnificent, Flourishing at Any Age, will show you how. He first shows that success comes from how we think. He then presents an eye-opening look at the latest brain research on how we can thrive in this new normal. After all, it's not magic, it's science. After working in hospital administration for 20 years, Stephen Campbell acquired his master's at the University of San Francisco and went on to pursue his greatest love, teaching. And after he taught for many, many years, he began traveling the world Um, speaking his message. And now he's with us today, how fortunate we are. Good morning, Steve, and welcome. Good morning. Good morning, Randy. How are you? I'm doing well today. Doing well. Hopefully that um, lawnmower will go away. Um, I I can't hear it. Perfect. Don't worry about it. It's fine. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Um, So, What do you tell us about this new normal and why we're all having such a hard time with it? Well, I think the reason we are having a hard time with it is that we all like to be in our comfort zones. The brain's job is to keep us safe in our comfort zones. And our comfort zones are simply the millions of self-images that we have. We don't have one self-image. We have millions of them. And our self-images are what keep us safe by giving us normalcy. Well, the pandemic has completely thrown that tither. And now we don't know what's going to happen in the future. We don't know what to do now. We're looking at each other, and the other person doesn't know any more than we do. 
And that really kind of shakes it up. The brain wants to keep us safe, and we're not safe. Um, so we're all kind of really nervous about this. And that's the reason why this is such a challenging time for everyone. You know, and I, I always say that, you know, transi- this is a transition, obviously. And, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. It was one we didn't anticipate, one we didn't want. But Never planned. Transi- right. But transitions are always very painful. But on the other side is the gift. But we just don't yes. know what that gift is going to be. So you say there right. we have met, we have many self images. Explain that. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm a first year baby boomer, and I was taught that you have a self image that you have to flourish and maintain. Well, that's only partially correct. It turns out that we don't have one self image. We have a self image for every ability, every habit, every aptitude, everything that we have. So. I have a self-image for how I see myself as a father, as a teacher, as a speaker, as a writer, as an author, as a grandfather. I have a self-image for all those things. I have a self-image for every meal that I cook. Did you know that, Randy? No. I have a self-image for, yes, I have a self-image for my scrambled eggs. I cook really good scrambled eggs. My secret is I just use a lot of butter. I cook horrible, horrible poached eggs. <laughs> so as you can probably tell, my, my self-image for my for my scrambles is really, really high. But my self-image for my uh, poached is really, really low. So we have all these self-images. We don't have – so we feel really good about ourselves in some areas and feel really bad about ourselves in other areas. For instance, I feel really good about myself in terms of my ability to teach. I feel not so great about myself in my terms of being an athlete. I'm just not a natural athlete. And you know what I've learned is that that's all right. My passion is not to be an athlete. My passion is to be a teacher. And those self-images are learned. Now, here's a really, really exciting thing. Our self-images are learned. You were not born with them, Randy. You were born with certain natural dispositions. I was born a natural teacher. When I was a kid, I used to put rocks in my backyard and pretended I was teaching them. I was a a weird kid. Um, But we are born with certain natural dispositions, but our self-images are learned. And you know what they're based on? They're learned from our self-talk. They come from what we say to ourselves about ourselves. So let me give you an example. Let's imagine that you do something really, really well, and you say, wow, I did something really, really well. One of the principles that I share with my audience, in fact, is the first principle that I begin with, that the brain believes everything we tell it without question, no arguments. So that's scary and wonderful. The scary part is when you say, oh, my gosh, that was so dumb. I'm so dumb for doing that. The brain just says, okay, yeah, you're right. You were and looks for other ways to make yourself feel dumb. That's the scary part. The wonderful part is when you switch that and you do something dumb and you say, well, it was dumb, but that doesn't mean I'm dumb. It's just mean I made a dumb mistake. I'm still really smart. And the brain immediately says, oh, okay, yeah, you're right. And then you know what it does? It becomes obsessed with finding ways for making you smarter. So it really comes down that your brain believes everything you tell it. Now the next question that comes up is, well, 
what if what you are saying is not true? Randy, did you know that your brain never asks that question? Your brain it never care. asks that question. <laughs> it never asks that question. There's a wonderful book called Guide to Rational Living by Dr. Via Ramachandran out of UC San Diego called Phantoms in the Brain. Phantoms referred to phantom limbs that have been amputated. And the patient might go into a doctor's office, he'll say, you got to help me. I can't do a thing with my arm. The doctor may say, well, that could be because I cut off that arm six months ago. And the patient might say, well, you didn't tell my brain that. My brain still thinks it's there. My brain wants to pick things up with it, and my brain wants to, wants to do all these things, and it gets to be itchy and achy. So the brain doesn't care whether what you're saying is true or not. I think one of the most amazing stories I have ever heard, because it's a true story, was uh, described in, on Chapter 12 of his book. He talks about a man knight who walked into a physician's office in OBGYN back in, during the Great Depression. Now, he's actually, this actually happened because we, we still have the medical records on it. And she was very pregnant, and she was very excited. This was her first baby, and she said to, doc, to the doctor, Dr. McGee, um, uh, my husband has been out of work. I have not been able to get to a physician's office, and I think I'm going to deliver today. Would you give me an exam? He said, oh, absolutely. So we did. And everything was normal, except for a couple of little hiccups. Her belly button was still an any, not an Audi, it hadn't popped out. He could not find a fetal heartbeat. In fact, she wasn't pregnant at all. She had a condition called pseudocyesis, which does not happen too much here in America, but in some third world countries it does. And as he talked to her, he discovered that all of her friends had children, her relatives had children, her brothers and sisters. They had been trying to get pregnant for years. And finally, when she missed three periods, she declared to her husband, I'm pregnant. And then the hormones kicked in. And she got the big belly and the big breast and the sway back position. So what does Dr. What does Dr. McGee do? Well, I don't agree with what he did, but he lied to her. He said, you're right. You deliver today. You don't have time to get to a hospital. But I'll deliver you right here because I've got pillows and warm blankets and everything. So he got her nice and comfortable. In fact, she drifted off to sleep for a while. And when she woke up, he was right there with her. And he said, I'm so sorry, but we lost the baby. And the medical records indicate that as soon as he said that, her tummy began going down. But she bounced in his office week, a week later, just as big as before. And she declared, Doctor, you forgot to deliver my twin. Oh, my gosh. The brain believes everything. Now, why is that so exciting? Because it is our choice what we say to ourselves. Our self-images come from our self-talk. So let me give you another example. I said to myself for the first 42 years of my life, I am really dumb in math. I'm stupid in math. And I was because that's what I said. I saw numbers. I would freak out. But back in the 70s, I began discovering computers. And I began tinkering around computers. And eventually got a graduate degree in computer science. And I began teaching computer science in various universities. One day, the dean came to my office. He said, one of our math professors just quit, Steve, so you're our new math professor. <gasps> um, you don't understand. I can't do my nerves. He said, do you want a job? Learn. 
there's the book next semester. Well, I needed the job, so I ran down to the Rona Park Library where we live, and I picked up all the books put in brain-based learning. This is how this whole started, thing started back in the 70s. And I began studying how the brain learns physiologically. And I based my curriculum on that. And students began saying, oh, you are such a good math teacher. You make it so <laughs> fun. And then the dean said, all the students saying, I will only take math if Mr. Campbell is my professor. And Randy, you know what I began doing? I began listening to those students rather than what I had been saying to myself for 42 years. And I began taking what they were saying and plugging it into my own life. You're such a great professor. And I said, you know, you're right. I am. And here's what's the most exciting part of it all. As I did that, my brain rewired itself. This is called neuroplasticity. There's a wonderful book called In Search of Memory by Dr. Eric Cantel, who got a Nobel Prize for his work. He studied sea slugs for 30 years. They have a very, very simple nervous system. And neuroplasticity is where the brain is continually rewiring itself based on what you're teaching it through your self-talk. And what happened was, the more I said, I am a really smart, good math professor, the more my brain said, yeah, you really are, you really are, the more it rewired itself until I eventually ended up writing through college textbooks. And what do you think? Computer software and math. There's a wonderful book out called The Guide to Rational Living by Dr. Albert Ellis and Dr. Robert Harper, written in 1961. It turned psychology on its ear. What he suggested was that everything we can do today is primarily based on what we say to ourselves about ourselves today. Can you notice I'm emphasizing the word today? When they suggested this, psychology back then had an absolute conniption. They said, no, 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 you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. The way you are today is based on your childhood. How you were raised, unresolved childhood conflicts, that was, of course, Freudianism. That was followed by behaviorism. Dr. B.F. Skinner of Harvard University, he said, no, 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 the way you are today is based on cause and effect. That was followed by a group saying it's all in your genes, which is, is clearly not wrong because we're more than our genes. That was followed by another group called environmentalists who said the way you are today is based on your environment, your birth, or your mom, your dad. Dr. Ellis came back and he said, you know what, they're all right. They're all correct. How can they all be correct? Because when you say it and lock onto it, your brain's job is to make it correct. That's what happened to me. I began saying, I am really good in math. And I was. Now, I want to be very, 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 very careful with this. I am brilliant in math. My brain is wired that way. I did not discover it till I was 42. Not everyone's that way. So you can't just say, well, I'm really, really smart at math, and suddenly it will happen magically. Um, I just happened to not discover it till I was 42. You um, know, it's, it's interesting. You know, your stories are super powerful, and yours is, is amazing. Um, and I kind of have a, a story of my own that proves this, that proved this to me a long time ago. Um, oh, I love stories. Yeah, 
so my son, my daughter was um, academic, just never got less than an A or a 4.0, fifth in her class, mm-hmm. magna cum laude in college. Anyway, oh, my, oh my, my son, um, when he was in school, he never studied for a test. He thought yeah. it was being, it was thought it was uncool to be smart. Uh, he never picked up a book, never read a book, and it mm. was really frustrating to my husband and I because, you know, I mean, he was doing okay in school because he had kind of a photographic memory, so he could remember what was going on in class. So he got mm-hmm. by pretty well, but he mm-hmm. never excelled, and he never really thought of himself as smart, and he would tell me that. He flunked every test he ever took. So, oh, God bless him. Yeah. So that sent a message to him, you know, I'm dumb. Mm -hmm. I can't achieve. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I told him every single day, you know, you're really smart. You're really smart. And, you know, look what you've done with this. Look what you've done with that. You are, you know, I don't like what you're saying. You are smart. And I used to tell him that Mm -hmm. for years, for years. Years and years, yeah. Years and years. I never allowed him to sit with those feelings. And mm-hmm. it didn't really show itself until he got to college. Mm. When he got to college, he decided that smart was the best thing he could be. <laughs> and he became smart. And yeah. he he loved learning. He taught himself how to study. He's a doctor oh now. God. He's a doctor now. <gasps> so, oh, yeah. So wow. it's you know, and medical school was a nightmare, but he did great. He got all the way through yeah. it. So this yeah. is a perfect example to me of how you can switch gears that way and how you can become what you think you are. He never yeah. acknowledged what I was saying to him because he would always say, "No, I'm not." But I kept saying it. Okay. Um, Stephen has dropped. Oh my gosh. Okay, so he'll call back. So anyway, that's um, that's a great story. And what I want to tell all of you is, and many of you are suffering from narcissistic abuse, and this is so important for you to understand. And I'm really happy to have Stephen with us today because what you're telling yourself is not right. It's been programmed into you. You've been taught to think a certain way about who you are. Welcome back, Stephen. We just kept going. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's right. Okay. That happens. Okay. Actually, it happens. Yeah, it us. does. It happens. Too, so. Um, so, so yeah, so that's, that's a story where I know that's true. And I was just talking to my listening audience and explaining that many of them have been um, – well, they are survivors of narcissistic abuse, mm-hmm. but what they tell themselves is far worse than the way they would t- the way they oh, would talk yeah. to anybody. Yeah. Um, they treat themselves terribly, and they don't believe that self love is something that they're entitled to. Yeah. So, this is such an important topic for us to be discussing because I want everybody to understand that that you can totally change how you think. Mm-hmm. And you know, and you mentioned, um, you know, basically, I am who I am. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, that's just who I am, and um, I've heard that many times from people. I am mm-hmm. who I am, yeah. but that's absolutely not true. That's that's, a, right. that's the lazy person's 
approach mm-hmm. to just mm-hmm. wanting to cling to what is familiar. And because it doesn't self-images. Right. It oh, doesn't get Go us ahead. anywhere. It doesn't get no. us anywhere. Okay. Our self-images are coming from what we're saying to ourselves right now, this moment. Let me share with you how our self-images are created because that really helps people to understand. The reason I did so poorly in math when I was a child is because I never paid attention to them, to the teacher. Well, I was, well, during my, while she was talking about math, I was drawing dinosaurs. So let's imagine I'm six years old. I'm in my room. I spend an hour drawing a T-Rex. And I take it to my sister, Shirley, who's the oldest sister, who's the oldest, um, my oldest sibling. I had, I had six siblings. And uh, I, I show her my picture, and she's playing with her friends. She doesn't want to look brother's bugging her. I say, look, look, look. And she says to me, oh, that's really bad, Stephen. You can't draw. Shirley has given me an opinion, but I record that opinion in my brain as it was called a neural cluster in the prefrontal cortex just under the forehead. So that's there now. Shirley's opinion, I can't draw. Then I draw, go back, and make, this time I make a picture of a triceratops, and I take it to Sally. Sally's younger than Shirley, and Sally says the same thing. You can't draw. So I record that too. Now what happens is the brain connects those two opinions. It begins to rewire itself and connects those two opinions, those two neural clusters. Well, now I'm going to show this to mom because I'm her only son, and, and I, I can do no wrong. So I go back to my room. Now, this time I'm going to draw a stegosaurus, but I'm going to draw a really neat stegosaurus right on my wall with crayons, paints, pastors, the whole thing. So I draw this amazing stegosaurus right on the wall, run down to the kitchen, come see, come see, come see. She opens the door and she says, oh, Stephen, what have you done? You can't draw. What did she mean, Randy? On the wall. What did I hear? I can't draw. And those, those get attached to the other two opinions. Now, those three are kind of injurious, but the next one is devastating because this is what we do. When I go to bed that night, what do I say to myself over and over and over? I draw. And my brain records that every single time. And then it rewires it attached to all the other things that are in there. To this day, I say to myself, I can't draw. Now, this is really important to understand. That's all right with me. I have no desire to be an artist. I have no desire to draw. I'll let my son-in-law be the artist. He is a professional artist. I want to be a teacher. But the point is, is that's the way our self-images are created, and they stay there. Now, here's some really, really, really exciting news for your listeners. Our self-images are hardwired, which means two things. Number one, you can't get rid of them. Okay? You cannot get rid of them. Number two, they're really, 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 really hard to change. But that leads to the third one. You can't get rid of them. They're really hard to change, but hang on to your seat here. Ready? Here we go. Ready. You can replace them. You can replace them. Mm. Now, the brain hates change, but you know what it loves? It loves to create. 
It loves to create new things. It hates to change, but loves to create new things. So what you do is you replace the negative messages you have been giving yourself with positive ones. And when you do, the brain says, okay, you're absolutely right. Now, what's even more exciting is that your feelings follow. One of the most amazing discoveries of psychology, and it was made by Dr. Ellis back in 1961, is that our feelings about ourselves do not come primarily, not completely, but do not come primarily from how we were raised or events in our lives or our failures or our successes. Do you know where they come from, Randy? They come from our beliefs about how we were raised and our beliefs about events in our lives and our failures and our successes. People say, well, Steve, I'm not really sure what I believe. There's a wonderful handle. The wonderful handle is your self-talk. Your self-talk reflects directly what you're believing. So if you want to know what your beliefs are, listen to what you're saying to yourself about yourself, and that will tell you. So during those 42 years when I said I'm really stupid in math, it was based on how I was raised and other things. But then when I was 42, I said, you know what? No more. I'm replacing what I've been saying to myself with, with what students are saying to me. And eventually, what they said became what I said to myself about myself. And my brain rewired itself. Now, this is really important. There is still a self-image in my mind of being stupid in math. It's still there because I've never had a lobotomy. Okay? So it's wired back there somewhere. But I haven't paid attention to it for 30 years. And that is so easy to me. That's an incredible. That's incredible. And you know, thank no, you for really such is. an illustrative, illustrative expl, uh, you know, um, explanation of this because it really helps us to understand. Yeah. what is going yeah. on when we change, try to change our thinking and that yeah. it is okay and that we can do it. Absolutely. Um, now, explain to me, because I think, I'm, I think that my listeners are saying to, them, to myself, how can our belief not be based on our childhood experience? So are you saying that it's based on what is said to us and how we interpret it? Uh, rather than the way we're raised? It's, it's based on what we are saying to ourselves and believing about how we were raised today. Today, right now, as you're sitting there, as, you're, as your listeners are listening, your feelings are coming from what you are saying about how you were raised today. Okay? So you have met people who were raised in situations that were horrendous. You're being one of them. Yes. And yet, look at what you've done with your life. You're an example of taking what happened to you as a child and turning it around. How did you do it? You switched what you were saying to yourself. You've also met people who have been raised in situations to die for. They're so wonderful. And some of them wish they could. 
What's the difference? Not the situation. You've already learned this, Randy. It's not the situation. It's what you say about the situation. More specifically, it's what you believe about the situation. Let me share with you another story that illustrates this. I ended up teaching math at the University of San Francisco, where I got my master's. And one of my students came to my office. After the first day of class, she was very, very shy, sat down, could hardly look at me. And she said, Mr. Campbell, I'm really glad you're my professor because I'm a C student in math. I said, what do you mean, Sue? She said, I have never, ever gotten above a C in a math test. So I'm just a C student and don't feel bad when you give me a C. And I said, well, Sue, I used to be that way, so let's work together. So I worked with her. She got an A in the first midterm. I gave her the test personally. And she looked at it, Randy, and she absolutely freaked out. She said, oh, Mr. Campbell, this is a mistake. I said, what do you mean, Sue? She said, I have never gotten above a scene in math test. You must have made a mistake. And I said, I didn't, Sue. I created this personally. This is an A. So then she looked at it longer. I'll never forget this. She looked at it longer, and then her face just lit up, Randy. It lit up. Her eyes got really, really bright. She looked up at me, and she said, do you know what this means? And, of course, now I'm getting excited. So I sat right down next to her. I said, of course I do, Sue, but you tell me. What does this mean? What does this mean? This means, Mr. Campbell, that when I flunk the next test, I can still maintain my C. I said, Sue, just get an A in every test. She said, oh, I can't. Why? Because I'm a C student. And, Randy, that's exactly what happened. She flunked the next test. She got a C in the course. So I sat down with her, and I, I, we looked at the, at the A on this test, and I said, answer me this, Sue. What would have happened if you had flunked this first test? Randy, you know what she said without a moment's hesitation? She said, easy, I would have said like crazy to get A on the next test. I'd have to maintain my C. <laughs> That's crazy. Wow. I said, Randy, just, um, I said, Sue, just get every test. She said, I can't. Why? Because I'm a C student. And we expand that. I'm a C student. This is the way I was raised. This is what I look like. These are the mistakes. This is where I messed up. This is what's happening. This is COVID. This is the pandemic. Or, 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 do you know when our old life ended, Randy? One second ago. It ended one second ago. Your old life is done one second ago, which means when did your new life begin? One second ago. Now do the math, 60 seconds per minute, 60 minutes per hour, 24 hours per day. In one 24-hour period, we have 86,400 new opportunities for a new life every single day. All we have to do is choose to take them. That's wow. amazing. That's amazing. That is well. So you know. So I want. I want to um, ask another question about that mm-hmm. uh, because in the work that I do, before anybody can even begin to change the way they think, they have to acknowledge where they've come from because they don't understand why they're feeling the way they do. So they do have Absolutely. to acknowledge the 
you know, the abuse from which they came, they not only acknowledge yeah. it, but accept it. Mm-hmm. So, so once they accept it, they can begin, you know, they're understanding why they think the way they do, and then they can begin mm-hmm. to change it. Mm-hmm. So, it is part of who we are, but at some point, I guess what you're saying is we can change what we tell ourselves about it. So when we look we can, back you at it. You know what? I don't like you to use the word change. The change okay. is change. When you say, I'm going to change the way I think my brain just, oh, no, don't, don't, don't do that. So you okay. say, I'm going to replace it. I'm going to replace it. I'm not going to, don't worry. I'm not going to take the old stuff out. I'm just going to replace it with the new stuff. Okay. And you do that, and the new stuff becomes predominant. So as I said to you, I still, you know, I, I, I could I could feel dumb in math anytime I want to. I just choose not to. Right. And I've replaced exactly. with, I mean, I looked at the books that I've written, and I said, no, someone who's dumb in math wouldn't be able to write this book. So it's still there. <laughs> I just I just refuse to lock on to it. Here's another story that I, I, I I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I just wanted to I just wanted to to say something. So, yeah, yeah. I've been doing this show for uh, almost ten years, and wow. I've done over five hundred shows. And when somebody first told me, I never never really thought that this is something I wanted to do. But when a friend said to mm-hmm. me, they had me on their show to talk about my platform, and then afterwards he said to me in private, you know, you really ought to do your your own show. And yeah. I said, I can't stand the sound of my voice. And I don't have the confidence to do it. And he wow. said, well, think about it. I realized that my father, every time he opened up his mouth, he said something stupid. He really did. He put his foot uh-huh. in his mouth constantly. And, oh, he, and I was always so embarrassed for him. So for me oh. to want to speak out other than the absolute necessity was uh, I didn't want to do it I didn't want to sound like a fool yeah so um but I'm the kind of person that the more scared I am the harder I'm going to work to overcome that because I believe that that's um that's standing in the way of my progress that's I just need if if somebody gives me that message I need to acknowledge it. So I started doing my show, but what I would do was I would write the content. It would take me days and days and days to write the content because it was 10 pages for 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. But that way I was guaranteed to say it right. And Mm -hmm. sometimes I wouldn't even like the first time and I would do it again until I got it Mm -hmm. perfect. And Mm -hmm. then I got somebody contacted me and they wanted to be on the show and I had never done an interview before but I loved the topic and I said okay well let's do it Mm -hmm. and I learned that I absolutely love interviewing Mm -hmm. that I do not put my foot in my mouth Mm -hmm. um, that I have things to say that people really want to hear and so now I do it with the utmost confidence wow so that illustrates your point Mm mm-hmm yeah, isn't that neat? Isn't that neat how our brain works? Mm-hmm. It is. Wow. Yeah, that's so exciting. So you were going to tell uh, another story. Well, yeah, there's another story that I love to tell. When I was a little boy, my dad taught me how to ride a bicycle. 
We went out to this road, took the train, was off. And he said, now, before I give you a little shout, Steve, you see that rock way out there about 50 feet? Yes, Daddy. Don't run into that rock. And you already know what happened. I got down on my bike, wanted to really press my dad, locked right on that rock, and bam, right into the rock. That's the way our brain works. Our brain locks on to whatever you feel is important. We can go on and on. We can go on and on with stories because I have another one. This this one's this one's a, a real peach. Yeah. Um, yeah. So my, my mother is is my is the narcissist in my life, but my mother okay. was. We always called her a witch because she would say things and then they would happen. Mm. So my daughter um, spent a lot of time with her, and my daughter really listened to what she said. She believed everything that she said, as I did when I was mm-hmm. a little girl. So mm-hmm. one day my mother came over. I had, um, we had just moved in with my husband-to-be. And she, my mother looks at the oven, and it was, his house was brand new. The appliances were brand new. The oven was brand new, everything like that. But my daughter was standing by the oven. My mother said, she needs to move. That oven door is going to hit her. And I looked at mm-hmm. her and I said, would you just get away? That is the most ridiculous thing I have ever heard in my life. Stop telling my daughter these weird things. Do you know that mm-hmm. oven door fell open and hit my daughter? <laughs> yep. I, I just, it's, you know, it's, and after that, I began works. to look at her very differently. I'm like, you get away from my daughter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. When we say... When we say, I have lost my keys, Randy, we can be looking right at them and we don't see them. Isn't that interesting? We look it right is. at them and we don't even see them. Yeah. Yeah. It is. So, there's a, then there's another. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. So, um, <clears throat> well, we can go on, you know, with stories and stories and stories, but uh, and I do want to hear the next story. I do. But you say, um, let's talk about the 15 brain print principles, and you have these in your book. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You're, I'm looking for the book. Oh, uh, Making Your Mind Magnificent, Flourishing at Any mm-hmm. Age. So what mm-hmm. are they? And then we'll come back to the stories. Well, let me let me bring them up on my computer <clears throat> because I don't have them memorized. So just to okay, make sure. Please, um, be right with you. Here we go. Intelligent Heart and Book. And PDF, and there goes. You should keep, you should keep a book next Here we to you. Go. I, yeah, I should. <laughs> yeah. Number okay. one, most important, our brain believes what we tell it. That's the basis of everything. Why is that so exciting? Because we can replace what we've been telling to it. And our brain says, okay. It accepts and believes what you tell it. Okay? Number two, our self-images are learned. 
based in our self-talk, which means when you say, I will always be this way, what does your brain say to that? Okay, yeah, you're right, you will be. And then looks for ways to make sure that you don't change. But when you say, today's a new life, and I'm growing and learning. In fact, my favorite two slides in all my presentations are this. The primary element that holds us back from learning, growing, changing is what we say to ourselves. The primary element that holds us back, that's one of the principles, is what we say to ourselves. Another principle is your self-talk helps create new self-images. In fact, that's what it does. That's what it does. Here's another one. You must agree with the opinion of another before they become a part of your self-image. Now, what others say to you do not become a part of you until you agree with them. Hmm. What others say to you do not become a part of you until you agree with them. Another one is that our feelings are coming from our beliefs. Let me share with you a story that it illustrates that so well. I was teaching. Mary called me at work. She never called me at work. And she, you know, when you pick up the phone, you know something's wrong. You just know, you just know it. You just know it. You get Mary near a phone and she talks. And she wasn't talking. So eventually I had to say, what's going on? Why did you call me? And she said, I just walked out of the doctor's office. I have cancer. I need you home. I need everybody home. So our daughters came home and their husbands and, and we all spent the day together planning um, planning and, and we, we talked and ate and drank and laughed and cried and all the before feelings that you deal when you're dealing with cancer. They went home and Mary and I talked in the evening then Mary went to bed and I went to my office. I picked up two books. One, of course, was the Bible. The other one was a book called Learned Optimism by Dr. B. P. Selgman of the University of of Pennsylvania. What he learned is that optimists do three things when they're dealing with really, 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 really hard stuff like the COVID. And it's what we did with Mary's cancer. Number one, they isolated. So Mary and I said, okay, here's the cancer. It means a mastectomy. It means corrective surgery, maybe. It means uh, chemo, it means losing your hair, it means radiation, all these things. But, 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 it's not the only thing in our life. There are other things that are just absolutely wonderful, like we live in Sonoma County, the most beautiful place in the world. We've been married for 45 years. Our two daughters are married to men who love them even more than we do, which we never thought could ever be possible. (laughs) So we said we are not going to allow this cancer to be an umbrella over the rest of our lives. Was it a one-time decision? Of course not. We had to make it many, many, many times when things got really hard. But over time, here's the exciting part, Randy, Over time, deciding that became easier and easier and easier because our brain rewires itself to where the the decisions that we make become easier to decide. Number two, what he discovered is that optimists temporalize things. They say every day is different. What's true today may not be true tomorrow. And so we said to each other, we're going to lock on to, like, 
locking onto that rock in the road. We're going to lock onto Mary being cancer-free in one year. Do we know that? No. Are we sure? Of course not. We can't be. But that's what we'll lock onto. That's what we'll begin celebrating today. And it was true. A year later, she was cancer-free. That's amazing. What a thing great outlook, that, outlook. Yeah, and the third thing that, that Dr. Selman talks about is that optimists say we can change the way we think. We can change the way we think. That's the most exciting part of all. We can change what we're thinking. So let me tell you what happened. So the year later, she was cancer-free. You after that, you after that, you after that. And then she called me at work, but this time it was different, Randy. This time when I picked up the phone, she said, hi, 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 what's going on? What's going on? She said, I just walked out of the doctor's office. They found something. <gasps> How are you doing? You know what, Steve? I'm doing fine. I made it through last time. I can make it through this time. What changed, Randy? Not the cancer. It's what Mary said about the cancer. 2018 was an amazing year for me. I discovered in the beginning of the year I, I had cancer. Then I discovered I had diabetes, and then I discovered I had um, glaucoma. I'm not. Um, what's the thing with your eyes? Um, not macular glaucoma, degeneration. The other one. Macular no, degeneration. No, it was. Um, anyway, it was. It was. Anyway. Um, Anyway, so, so I had, so for the, the cancer, they took a scalp, they got a piece of scalp off of my scalp, and I'm cancer-free. The diabetes, that had completely changed my diet. I lost 30 pounds, and the, for the eye thing, they replaced the lenses and, little lenses, and I don't need glasses anymore. And then at the end of the year, I discovered I had advanced heart disease. My, my, one of my valves was flipping all over the place, so I had open-heart surgery last year. The point that I want to make, however, is that my feelings did not come from the cancer or the cataracts, cataracts. They didn't come from the cancer or the cataracts. They came from what I was saying about the cancer and the cataracts. That applies to what your listeners are going through today. Their feelings are not coming from COVID-19. They're coming from what they were saying about COVID-19. The things that are happening are not all bad. We're really getting to know each other. We're spending time with each other. We're not having to commute. The Palestinians and the Israelis are working together to fight this thing. That's the first time they've ever done that. That's incredible. So there are some good things that are coming out of this. And what we do is we choose to lock onto those good things. And when we do, the brain says, oh, okay, you're right. And the more we do it, the easier it gets because the brain's rewiring itself. You know, I wanted, to, I, um, I wanted to, to just put in a comment talking about what we did over, you know, during this time. I decided I wanted to educate myself. And do you know whose course I took? Dr. Seligman. I took his course on positive. Oh, it was a, a on positive me. psychology. Absolutely, he oh, is my. truly amazing. Um, it was me, it was a mesmerizing course, um, oh. and so wow. I, yeah, I just had to put that in there because oh, he my God. he is the he positive psychology arose at the end of the twentieth century. 
Yeah. So, yeah. you know, this is kind of a new, well, not that new, but, um, yeah. He kind put of the science like, into it. He, he put, put the science, put it as, he put the psychology into it. Yeah. You know, and I took, in my book, Close Encounters, I talk about learned helplessness. I have a chapter on learned helplessness, which, oh is, my which is what Seligman, that's a term yeah. he coined, and he did the yeah. experiments. But you yeah. know what he says now? He doesn't agree with it anymore. Really? Yes. He what doesn't he agree. Say? So I'm trying to look back at my notes. Um, let me see. Gosh, I better look him up. <laughs> yeah. He's in my book. Yeah. Um, what is the hardest I got in memory? So, uh, I don't, I didn't write it down. It just struck me. That he has a I'll, different I'll perspective. Look yeah, look it up. Look it up. So, I'll look it up. Yeah. 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 So it's in my book, Learned Helplessness, but he's saying he has a different view on it now. So wow. uh, check that out. Okay. So what? I will. Um, what? Um, what principle were we? What was next? Okay. There's another principle that I like to share. But well, it's not really a principle, but it's a, a, a story that applies this because I want. You, I want to give your, your listeners two applications that can use this when we're done here. If, if you don't use it, you're going to lose it. This is really good information, but if you don't have a way to, 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 to replace the way you're thinking, it's not going to do any good. So these two applications um, apply to when you do something really, really, really well, and they apply also, the second one is when you blow it, when you do something really poorly, which pretty much covers everything. So let's talk about the first one first because this will really help your your listeners. When we do something really, really well, um, well, a study came out in at Stanford University back in 1975 called the effort effect. You can Google it. What they discovered is that most of us, most of us pass over our successes too quickly or too lightly for them to ever become a part of our self-image. So when we do something well and somebody says, good job, we often say, well, not really. It could have been better. Mm -hmm. I was part of a team. Thank you very much. But that's egotistical. Not thank you, but, well, you know, well, well, no, 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 no. Okay, what have we learned together today, Randy? When you say no, 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 what is your brain going to say? Okay. And those compliments fall to the floor, which is sad and what a waste. So here's... Here's your new application for your listeners. With your new life that began one second ago, when someone says, good job, you look at them and you smile, and you say, thanks, I know. (laughs) I was sharing this with 300 college physicians in Southern California a number of years ago at the Hilton, and when I said that, the whole ballroom just broke up and roared with laughter <laughs> the thought of doing that. But I'll tell you, Randy, they love me. They love me. They bought my book. They signed up for my, my online seminar. When I was driving back to LAX, I was so excited, I almost drove off the freeway. So I stopped by a Chevron, got a tuna sandwich and a Coke, and nobody saw me do this. When the car was gassing up, I looked in the mirror and I said, oh. Oh, Steve, you are the most amazing speaker. (laughs) And what did my brain say? You really are. But this is from Seligman. Not only did it say you really are, it also said, 
and Steve, you could even be better. Randy had opened up the gate, and I began thinking of all sorts of ways I could be a better teacher. I could do this and that, that, and this. Now, if I had said, you know what, you messed up here, you messed up there, you messed up here, which I did, what would have happened to the gate, Randy? Slam shut. Yeah. So here's your new way of thinking for your listeners. When you do something really well and someone compliments, you simply smile and you gently say, you know what, that makes me feel really nice. Thanks for taking the time to tell me that. And then you wallow in your success like a pig in slop. <laughs> wallow and, you know, that's, that's so hard for uh, a lot of my listeners oh, because – Oh, yeah. yeah, because they saw they've seen selfishness and boasting at it is at its ugliest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So for them, mm-hmm. it's quite difficult for a them challenge. to wallow. Yeah, yeah it yeah. is. But so yeah. so but everybody take take heed, listen, um, and just try it because just to counteract it, it doesn't mean mm-hmm. that you have to completely believe it, but say it. No, no, start it. Start it with little steps, little steps. And then what about when we blow it, when we make those big, huge bonehead mistakes and we say, oh, my gosh, how could I have been so stupid? Well, the problem with that is when we ask that question, our brain immediately pops up and says, oh, I know. Remember that dumb thing you did yesterday or that dumb thing you did a week ago, a month ago, a year ago? Remember how you were the slowest reader in the third grade? And do you know what we do, Randy, is we get out this list. We almost get out this list, and we go down the list of all the dumb things we've ever done. Now, this is really important to understand for your listeners. When we do that, our brain does not know that those memories, and that's all they are, is memories, happened a week ago, a month ago, a year ago. The brain's recording those mistakes along with the feelings. But this time is if they happen when? Right now. And then you're carrying that stuff around. Here's the one I want to share with your audience. And I get, I get teary-eyed because it's so exciting. Here we go. Ready? People, listen to me. You don't have to do that starting when? Right now. So what do you do instead? Okay, here we go. Number one, you throw away the list. Okay? Take the list, throw it away. Don't need it. You need it when you were little because you were in survival mode but you don't need it now. And then number two, use three wonderful words. You know what the words are? The next time. The next time I'll do it this way or that way. And when you say the next time, you're saying three wonderful things. Number one, you're saying there is a next time. How many next times do we get, Randy? Millions. As many as we want. Millions and billions and trillions. Isn't that wonderful? It is wonderful. You know, Steve, we are um, coming down to the end of the show. And, um, okay. and so I want to ask you, uh, you know, you're, you're just so wonderful. What you say is wonderful. Oh, you, gosh, you, Thank you. you know, I, and you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I know. <laughs> but, but no, it's, it, this has just been incredible, incredible. So um, do you have a website we can visit? Yes, it's Stephen R. Campbell dot com s t e v e n uh, r campbell c m p b e l l dot com stephen r campbell dot com okay and i also have a book on amazon called making your mind magnificent 
flourishing at any age. Flourishing um, at any age. And you talk about all these principles. All these and, things. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. And I That's also cool. have, I also have an online seminar which people are interested in and in, um, um, registering for. And I've I've cut the the, the price down during COVID from two ninety seven down to forty nine dollars. It's oh a gosh. seminar I gave in Silicon Valley. And uh, people love it. And if they're interested, they can email me. I'll give them information and the code that will enable to have it. My email is Stephen C S T E V E N C S B C Global dot net. Okay. All right. Yeah. Thank you for that. And um, you know, and to my listeners, I had a wonderful, wonderful time on Stephen's show. Um, Two days ago, and um, so he has a, a wonderful podcast as well, Stephen Campbell, Steve Campbell Show. Mm-hmm. So anyway, um, take a peek at that, and I'll have my interview up on my website so you can listen to that and, and hear, you know, what we did on that show, Great. what we accomplished yeah. on that show. Anyway, thank you, so, thank you again. I, I can't thank you enough. Oh, this, Randy, this is thank perfect. you so much. Your you told me that you had so many. Yeah, yeah you told it's me perfect. That so many people wanted to be in the show, and you chose me, so that made me feel really good. So yeah, thank you for it, that. it really, really was wonderful. So thank you for what you do. It's and I know you couldn't do anything but this. This is this is part yeah. of you. So um, yeah. So what a gift to you and to others. I appreciate so much your work, and thank have you, a wonderful day. You too. You too. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye bye. Bye-bye. So we are out of time today, but if you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email me at loveyourlifeatrandyfine.com. May joy and serenity always be yours. Goodbye. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Visit randyfine.com, R-A-N-D-I-F-I-N-E.com, and be sure to sign up to receive updates on the latest blog posts, events, and upcoming shows. Thank you for listening.